0: Jesus and his disciples at this point, they're traveling down towards Jerusalem. And as we've already seen a couple weeks ago, they're having interesting and important conversations. Remember, we talked about how the disciples were remarking on who was the greatest among them. I mean, what a ridiculous conversation. Who's better than who? Who's going to take over for Jesus? Um, I can't even imagine it, but we looked at what true greatness really was. But Jesus always uses... These moments along the way in their travels for discipleship. And he does the same thing with us. And so that's what he's doing as they continue to travel down towards Jerusalem for Jesus to to go and endure the cross on behalf of all humanity. We're going to see that take place. But before that takes place, what we're going to look at here in Mark chapter 10 is they stop in this uh, Judean region. And Pharisees approach him, and they want to ask him about divorce. So that's what we'll be talking about today, because that's what the Scripture talks about. But here's what the Bible says, Mark 10, verse 1. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began questioning him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again, and he said to them, "'Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman "'commits adultery against her. "'And if she herself divorces her husband "'and marries another man, she is committing adultery. "'And they were bringing children to him "'so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. "'But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, "'Permit the children to come to me. "'Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God "'belongs to such as these.'" Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them and laying his hands on them. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I think it's safe to assume today that divorce has probably affected every single one of us in the room. And what I mean by that is either we've been divorced or our parents were divorced, our kids have been divorced or people around us, friends and family members, co-workers have been divorced and we've seen it impact us. I think the pain of divorce and what happens as a result of it is probably so great that we cannot calculate it. And I just want to state for the record that nobody says I do on the day of their wedding to turn around and later say I don't. Nobody starts out thinking that this is going to go down that path. Nobody wants that to happen. Nobody wants a divorce. But the fact is, divorce is a reality of our world. And as we can tell from the text, divorce was a reality of their world as well. If you're not sure of recent statistics, it tells us back in 1981, the divorce rate in the United States of America was about 53%. The estimates now are probably about 45%, but the truth is is that a lot more people, uh, or a lot less people, are getting married. Rather, they're cohabitating. But as far as I can tell from the statistics, it would seem that the church has almost the same divorce rate as non-Christians. And this is a sad reality, and because of the pain and the difficulty and the confusion... It is important that we talk about these things in a very true and biblical sense, even if we find it uncomfortable. I would like to confess to you today that as a pastor, I've been in pastoral ministry for over 20 years at this point. I know I don't look old and I started too young. It's true. (laughs) But the truth for me in pastoral ministry is that I am in more conversations with people about the pain and the difficulty of marriage and also the trauma of divorce far more than I am in the beauty and the development of marriage. That is my reality if it is not all of ours. And you might ask the question, why is that the case? Well, I'm going to give you an, an answer and I just need you to absorb this. The, the, the reason is because of sin. The reason is sin. Sin that we commit, sin that is committed against us, sin that is around us, sin that raised us, that nurtured us, sin that's in the culture that is speaking to us, this big spider web called sin. When you look at the original design of marriage, you go all the way back to creation and what you find is that when God made marriage, he took a step back and he said, this is good. But it didn't stay good because in Genesis chapter 3, sin entered into the garden and it entered into the human heart and it affected everything, including this thing that we call marriage. But here's our hope today. Our hope is that Jesus is restoring all those who call upon his name, amen? Jesus can restore every human heart that turns to him in faith and repentance. And that means that there's hope for marriage, there's hope for the Christian community to see God do what he originally intended in marriage, what he designed marriage for. We can be a living example of what God intended when he created this thing called marriage as we turn to him. That's our hope today. Jesus can restore all things. If you believe that, go ahead and say amen today. Amen. All right, that's a good amen. I li- that was a good amen. <laughs> I won't be able to cover everything today. We're, we're talking about divorce because that's what the text brings to our attention, but if I were to do like a series, I would probably talk about marriage for a few weeks, I would talk about divorce for two weeks, and I'd talk about remarriage at least one week. So we do need five weeks to discuss this, and I have one to do that. So we're gonna focus primarily on divorce. But let's look at three things. And the first we find in chapter 10 and verse one through four, and that is the question about divorce. There is a question at hand that we're going to settle here in the text. The question about divorce... Verse 1, getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him. That's a very important uh, part of this passage. They were testing him. And he and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? And they said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus says right back to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. There are a couple things as we want to frame up the question about divorce that's being asked of Jesus. And the first is this. This is what the Pharisees were really asking. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? For any reason? That's what they were asking. Well, Mark's account only says, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? But Matthew's gospel, the parallel account, adds on to that, For any reason? And that is the question that they were asking. And the reason that we know that is because there was a debate regarding the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. This is the historical background and why they asked Jesus to begin with. And here's what Deuteronomy 24 says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house... Or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Well, I don't know if that's the prevailing question that we're asking today, but this is certainly something that they were struggling with back in those days as they were going to enter the promised land. What is Jesus being asked and why? Well, here's what's going on. There are basically two schools of thought or theology led by two prominent rabbis. And that's what brings us to Mark chapter 10. The first rabbi was Rabbi Hillel, and he essentially taught that any man could divorce his wife for just about any reason— And by the way, this was the dominant view during those times. The Pharisees were asking. The Pharisees were conservative theologically. And yet, they took the liberal theological view on this one. And there's a reason for it, which I'll touch on in a minute. They would focus on the term some rather than some indecency. And so basically, what they would come to is their interpretation was that if I find anything wrong with my wife, then I can divorce her and sign a certificate of divorce and send her away. When you read rabbinic literature, you'll find ridiculous notions, ridiculous reasons like this. You could divorce your wife for burning your meal or putting too much salt on your food. You could divorce your wife for having an unkind word about her mother-in-law. You could divorce your wife for spinning around publicly where her kneecaps were exposed, and this would be indecent. Friends, these are reasons that they actually sent their wives away but there was another school of thought and that was rabbi shammai and he permitted divorce only in the case of sexual immorality this was a much less common view and the debate continued but it was already overwhelmed by any cause divorce led by rabbi hillel And so Rabbi Shammai, he and his followers, they used the word indecent a lot more properly, a lot more specifically, which was translated sexual immorality, which means that he would say a person could get a divorce if the spouse committed adultery or the like. And in that circumstance, divorce was permitted. And so they're really asking Jesus out of this debate and they want Jesus to side with one or the other. And of course they want him um, to say this loud and clear for, for everyone. And Jesus does neither because he will have none of it. Amen. He will have none of their foolishness. He asked the Pharisees this question, what did Moses command you? Notice the word command. What did Moses command you? They respond to him, Moses permitted a certificate of divorce. The word is is very interesting how Jesus words it to them and how they word it back to him. Moses did not command this, but he did allow men to give their wives a certificate of divorce and send her away. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, I'm not agreeing with Hillel and I'm not necessarily agreeing with Shammai. I'm asking you, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What did Moses say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Let's go back to the Bible. Let's stop the debate among the rabbis and let's see what the word actually says. What a great question that Jesus asked. Isn't that right? And We know he's on a path going somewhere with them and he always is and and they're not yet to perceive it. But the third part of this divorce question is Jesus revealed that their question or the question they were asking was not the right question at all. Again, in their culture, divorce had become common, uh, even among the Jews, which is their sad reality. And they were not asking Jesus this question with an open heart. They wanted to trap him and they wanted to justify the hardness of their own hearts. And so Jesus tells them clearly, Moses permitted a certificate of divorce because your hearts were hard. And listen to this, a certificate of divorce was permitted. It was not encouraged Because men were selfish, lustful, and ungodly. Notice how this is all about men. Men were allowed to put away their wife with a certificate of divorce. The question to Jesus was, can a man put his wife away for any reason? Notice what this is about. It is about the selfishness, the lust, and the ungodliness of men. Why did Moses permit a certificate of divorce? Because their hearts were hard. In other words, if they were to put their wife away without a certificate, number one, they wouldn't receive the dowry that was given by their father when they got married. What does that mean? When a wife in the ancient Semitic culture was married, one of the ways that her father would help provide for her, and again, this is a highly suppressed culture for women, But one of the ways they would get around sort of the firstborn and being a son and the way the inheritance was passed on to sons, the way it would be given to a daughter is when she got married, the father would give the daughter a dowry that was given to the man to steward. But if that man were to divorce his wife, that dowry belonged to her. That was her money for her to take. If she wasn't given a certificate of divorce, the man would keep the money, So Moses was writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to protect the woman. The other thing about this too was that she couldn't remarry. She would live in shame, usually in her father's house the rest of her life. And the third part of this is if she didn't have a certificate of divorce that she could be accused for much more indecency because there would be speculation. So the reason that Moses allowed them or permitted them to write a certificate of divorce is not because he wanted them to divorce. He was living in the reality of divorce and he was saying, we've got to protect the vulnerable. And in that situation, it was the women. And we've got to look at this picture the way that it was. God wasn't encouraging divorce, but in the allowance of what was actually happening, it was written in the law to protect the vulnerable. And how many of you read the Old Covenant and you have found that time and again, God has written things in the law that seemed common sense, but because of lust, because of deceit, because of sin, it was written into the law so that God would protect the vulnerable. He wrote it in stone so that human hearts were all accountable. And there was no exception in this particular instance. But this is a very serious picture of lust. Can you see that? Most of the men in that culture, they were divorcing their wives so that they could go marry someone else that they had their eyes on. That's why they were divorcing. And so Jesus confronted them. But this is a very serious picture of how far lust will go. And we have to take note of that. Jesus would have none of it. He saw right through it. And they didn't even understand why Moses wrote this. So he told them why. It is the hardness of your heart. That is why you're asking about the concession of divorce instead of the intention of marriage. I bet you Jesus was grieved deeply. Why are we not talking about the beauty of marriage, how to develop Marriage. what marriage was intended for, how to get back to its original intent, what God is concerned about. No, no, we're asking about concession of marriage. They're asking the wrong question. So what does Jesus do? He brings it back to the original intent of God who created marriage by talking about the purpose of marriage. Look at verse five. But from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I love this. Jesus presses the reset button on the conversation, and he ejects Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai right out of the driver's seat. And he puts God, the author of marriage, right back into the driver's seat. God made them male and female, and he brought them together in covenant relationship, which we call marriage, where a family could be created. That's his original intention. And Jesus is challenging them by saying this in that they were conveying a question, seeing that they had lost the purpose of marriage even in their question and weren't concerned about it couple things I want to highlight about the purpose of marriage very quickly. Number one is the purpose of marriage is to glorify God through the two becoming one. They saw marriage as a contract, but God sees marriage as a covenant. They saw marriage as something that was contractually legally binding, but God sees it as spiritually binding and he is the glue. Let no man separate what God has joined together. God is the glue. See, this is a, certificate of marriage. If you get married here at Northwest Church and I officiate your wedding, you get, you get one of these. It's very nice, you can write, write in it, you know, it's not the legal one, but this is the nice one. You can frame this and take it home with you or whatever. This is how people saw marriage. They could sign it one day and then they could sign a certificate of divorce the next. They could rip this up because it's just a piece of paper. It's just a contract. But Jesus is saying it is more than a contract to God. It is a covenant that you make, not just with your spouse, but you make a covenant with him as well. What does this mean? This means that if God is the designer of marriage, he is the definer of its purpose. Jesus wants us to go back and re-look at this. That's what he was challenging them with right there. Think about this. When you get married, you're making not just a covenant with that person because how many of you know, just like the old covenant, think about this, it's not marriage, but the old covenant was what God wrote in stone between God and man. Guess what? We all broke the old covenant. Nobody could live perfectly righteous before God and fulfill the old covenant. That's why there had to be a new covenant. Amen. Amen. Jesus made a covenant. The son made a covenant with the father and it was perfectly made. It cannot be broken. And the only way that you and I are cleansed and rightly related to God is that we enter into a perfect covenant through the blood of Jesus because Jesus fulfilled the covenant that we could not fulfill. Here's the reality about marriage. Take that concept. Here's the reality about marriage for us is that you and I make a covenant with someone else in marriage but we know that we are not able to fulfill the vows that we make and say amen because you know it's true. So at the same time that you're making a covenant to that person, you are making it before God, not just so that he holds you accountable, but that also he is the sustainer of the covenant that you are making. God is the one that gives you the strength. God is the one that renews your heart. God is the one that gives you what you need. It isn't just between a husband and a wife. It's between a husband and a wife and God. There's more than us in the equation. And Jesus was resetting them to this reality. A divorce is basically like an amputation is to the body. God's the glue. He binds, let God, let not man separate what God has joined together. When a a couple gets a divorce for whatever reason, which we'll talk about in a minute, it's like amputating an arm. Even if it's necessary, it hurts. It leaves a scar. It's painful. Nobody wants it. That's what it's like. It's to separate something that was joined together, something that was part of the body, something that was serious. That's what it's like. It leaves a scar. Secondly, marriage is a lifelong covenant between one man, one woman, and and the Lord. I was alluding to this, obviously. But marriage is a commitment to someone before God where we say, till death do us part. This is God's intention. This is God's intention. Being committed in marriage is to stay true to our vows. What is a vow? A vow is a pledge, it's a promise that binds us to live in a specific way. People never renew their marriage, they renew their vows. Sometimes people will say this to you or to me, they'll say, well, I'm just committed to the marriage. What does that even mean? It's like we're committed to a thing and not a person. It's a very strange comment. Well, I'm committed to the marriage. I'm going to stay with them for the sake of the kids because that's what's right. When you make vows with a person, you are binding yourself to a way of life, not to just a thing that you said yes to, that you're obligated to. That is a contract. That is not a covenant. That's why I'll just stay with you, you know. And that is a profession. That's a confession that something is missing in marriage in our life. And Jesus wants the Pharisees to see that. Look at the way you're treating your spouse. Look at the way you're even asking the question. Why would you not therefore ask, how do we make marriage work? How do we make marriage strong? They're not even interested in asking the question. Why? Because that's what sin is like. Did you know that we in Washington State live in a no-fault divorce state? That means that it takes three to 12 months to make your marriage null and void. We live in a similar culture as they did. It's a, little, it's a little different, obviously, but we also live in a time where marriage is 50% of all marriages end in divorce. We absolutely can relate to this. We're not just committed to staying together. We're committed to growing and loving and serving and sharing and sacrificing. But friends, you know, you know it as well as I do. We live in a world that's all about the upgrade. It's about the newer version, Get the new iPhone, because the 12 isn't as good as the 13, and we know the 14's coming every September. Your car's not new enough. There's more frills and gimmicks. Our advertising is completely set up to convince you and I that we're missing something because we don't have the newest, latest, greatest. And so we live in a time that is speaking to us loud and clear about what we're missing, And so you can imagine if God isn't the glue of our lives, what's going to happen is we're going to subtly get deceived into believing, you know what, I'm not happy, I don't like this, something's missing, something's wrong, and I need to go and find whatever is going to satisfy that thing in my heart. And you know as well as I do, there is only one that can do just that. And it is not another person. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. When we commit to someone in holy matrimony, we say, I do, which is a declaration of intent. But over a long period of time, till death do us part, our commitment to our spouse unfolds. And I want to tell you what it does, especially in a culture like ours. You know what it does? It shows people that there is a God who is faithful because he helps us to be faithful. It shows people who can't seemingly find the substance to stay loving and kind and patient. And not just we're committed to working it out, but we're committed to thriving and not surviving. That's what we're working towards. It may not be our reality right now, but that's what we want. Every year we wanna look back and feel like we've grown more if we're married. Now I know there's single people in the room, but it's just as important for us to hear that if you're single, to understand the context of marriage biblically so that we can support that as we would be supported in, in our singleness. Marriage is a lifelong covenant. But here's what we want to focus on for the rest of our time, the reality of divorce then and now. We have to answer some of these very difficult questions, and I would say have been confused, even theologically, over the years. But here's what Jesus said in verse 10. In the house, the disciples began questioning him. The Pharisees are gone. The disciples want to know a little bit more. And don't you commend them for wanting to know more? Don't you and I want to know more? Okay, Lord, uh, help us understand divorce then, as now we all of a sudden realize it's pretty serious. You're, you're dropping some weight here, and I think I got a few questions. We have questions, and, and so did they. So they're in the house, <laughs> and they gather around Jesus, and they begin questioning him, and he says this to them. It just, it just doesn't make it easier. He said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. If we read Matthew's account of this conversation, we also will observe the disciples' reaction to this. It doesn't say it in Mark, but it does in Matthew. And here was their reaction when Jesus said that. Listen to this. Who then should be married? When they heard Jesus say this, their next thought was, and they said it out loud in their mouth, it's recorded, all right, in God's eternal word. <laughs> Who then should really be married? Well, that is the question, and Jesus said, it's not for everybody. It is that serious to God. The answer Jesus gave, though, and you need to hear me carefully, his, was, his answer was a response to the question which did actually indict the majority of those divorces as wrong. However, we must understand that Jesus was not in that moment discussing the full details of marriage and divorce. There was an acceptance and an understanding of divorce that is not found in this passage and and in this response. And we really have to know that. So a couple things I wanna share with you today. Number one, divorce is not a way out of marriage. It is the last resort for a suffering spouse. Every passage given concession for divorce is not saying what you should do. Rather, it's what you can do. All passages assume a spouse is suffering and reconciliation is not possible. And if it were to take place, it would lead to ongoing suffering. That's what all of the passages convey. We are struggling with multiple cultural lies that I think feed into this. And really, I mean, even if you're uncomfortable right now, I I, I understand that. I I want to talk a little bit about that at the end. But we are suffering with some cultural lies. That's what brings us usually to the uncomfort that we have, including pain and trauma and difficulty. But here are some cultural lies. Number one, marriage is a means to bring me self-fulfillment. That's what culturally we believe. But the Bible says it's meant to bring transformation and glory to God. If God's the designer, he's the definer, and it's not just about my self-fulfillment, it's ultimately about bringing glory to God. The creation brings glory to the creator. That's what marriage is for. That's why if we get into a jam or we get into a difficulty or we have tension, we've gotta ask the hard question, what does God think about my marriage? What does God think about my heart? What am I not doing right? What am I doing right? What are they doing wrong? It can't just be a reflection on them, it also has to be a reflection of us because ultimately we glorify God together in marriage. But the world tells us it's about self-fulfillment. And so if I'm not fulfilled, I need to go find that somewhere else. The second lie is our happiness is most important. But the Bible teaches us in marriage that we're called to love and serve each other sacrificially to lay our lives down for our spouse. And so if happiness is our highest goal, it's going to take maybe three months in marriage to realize this person that you have married is not going to bring a fullness of happiness to your life. I think my wife realized it within 24 hours. (laughs) The third lie is sexual expression and romantic engagement are the climax of marriage relationship. Now, not everybody buys that, but I think some do. And so some people rush into marriage and they get married for the wrong reason because they want to have sex. And that does not last very long. Sex is an important part of marriage, but it's not the most important part. I mean, it's just, a, if you have like a pie chart, it's a very small piece the more you're married and you realize what really matters. This is important, but in this overall thing called marriage, it is not the climax of our relationship with each other. Is that true? And so our movies and our media is selling that to us. Have you ever watched the movie and you see the romantic relationship between a husband and a wife and you look at it and you just look over at your spouse and you go, wow. I wonder if you're depressed right now, you know? But I'll bet you if you look up that actor, they might've been divorced once, twice, or thrice. Isn't it funny how the movies aren't even the reality of their life? Because a movie in a couple hours is trying to tell you something that the culture believes, and it's about having the butterflies in your stomach for the rest of your life, rather than sacrifice and love and giving yourself away so that you're transformed and that they're blessed. We have these lies, and so divorce is not a way out of marriage because of these things not being fulfilled or Our fantasies being expressed or happiness being the most important thing. It's the last resort for a suffering spouse. And we know nobody wants to be divorced, guys. Nobody wants their kids to be divorced. We don't want that. But what are the biblical grounds for divorce that were understood then and should be understood now? Well, well, here they are basically summed up. We have here uh, Mark 10, Matthew 19, sexual immorality. This is adultery or unrepentant sexual addiction. This is an ongoing thing, obviously, where reconciliation is not possible. It's not commanded, it's permitted. We have to understand that context. The second is in Exodus 21:10. Now, if you read rabbinic literature, in the Western world, in Jesus' context, you have to know this, guys. If you do the research, you'll find this to be true. Okay. And I'll give you some resources at the end where you can do that. But in Exodus 21, before they go into the promised land, while they're out in the wilderness, There is allowance for this, and it was considered persistent neglect. And what you would find is if a husband didn't care for his wife and food, clothing, and conjugal love, and that would go both ways for a wife as well, that permission for divorce could be granted in such a case. But this wasn't like kind of. Friends, this wasn't like a little bit. This isn't like God saying, go for it. I want you to get divorced. This was like, if there is a reality of this, and this does not stop, and a person is not fulfilling their vows to care for, cover, and love, and walk with, then this is permitted in such an instance. You can check it out for yourself. The other part is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10 through 15, tell us that abandonment is also given permission for divorce. That's a non-believer or someone that is acting as a non-believer. I've walked with a lot of people through this issue, and it's very painful, it's very difficult. I've never personally given somebody like this charge, go divorce someone, but I've walked them through the reality of what they're facing as covenants have been broken, as vows are not being fulfilled over a period of time. And I could walk with you through the process that we go through and giving God time to do miracles and all of that. But abandonment is just a reality. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, as Paul's talking to a cultural mind in the Roman government, they have their own way of divorce in the Roman world. So you have what happens in the Jewish mindset, in the Jewish world, in their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, but then you also have in Paul's day, in Corinth, the Roman mindset, and he was saying, I don't want you to follow the way of the world in the way that they do this, but when somebody is not following the Lord and this is the reality, then you're not under bondage in such cases. That's literally what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And the last one, I believe, is found in 1 Corinthians 7, and it's not direct, but I have come to believe this over a long period of time in walking with people, and that is abuse. And I'm talking about violent and sexual and to some degree verbal, because I consider this worse than neglect. When you think about neglect being an option for divorce, I believe abuse. Now, we live in a culture where people use the word abuse just like the word and. And so I don't, I'm don't. i not saying personally as a pastor that I think we have biblical grounds when there's a level of abuse, just go for it. But I do think that there's a way that we have to work this out and walk this out in accountability so that we are assured that this is the right step for our life. I'm not saying it's free. I'm not saying we should just do it. In fact, Jesus and Paul are encouraging them not to use any cause divorce. That's what he's encouraging them toward. But He's also explicitly saying, when this reality exists, here's the permission that you have. But knowing that it's painful, we're not looking at it as sort of like a free ride. The third part is seek reconciliation whenever possible in the context of accountability. If you're married and you've been sinned against or you're suffering, then I would say this to you, you literally need help. You need accountability so that you're not making decisions simply out of how you feel in that moment. You need someone else to also look at what you're going through. I would apply the principles of Matthew 18 to such an instance, and that is this. When someone sins against you, go to them. If they don't listen to you and they don't change and there's nothing that's going to happen as a result of your confrontation of their sin, then bring someone else. That's accountability. If they don't listen to them, then bring them to the church. If they don't listen to the church, then treat them like an unbeliever. And now you're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because this person may profess faith in Christ, but they live everything but that. And so I've walked with a number of people in this instance. The process would change in certain scenarios like abuse. Reconciliation may not be possible. I've been involved in a number of situations where that was actually the case. But I must admit this to you, and I need to share this with you. When people come to me, usually... It's, it's not for help. I'm just gonna be honest. Are you ready? I have a couple minutes left. When people come to me, usually they're not ready. They, they don't, they're not saying, hey, we're seeking help. Sometimes that's the case. But this is what their hearts are like when they come. Okay? Remember what Jesus said? He said, Because of the hardness of your heart, I had to give you permission so that the vulnerable would be protected. Oftentimes, by the time People get to me, it's not necessarily for help. They've already solidified where they're at. Now, I'm not saying this to shame anybody. I'm just telling you the reality. But here's the thing. When the two become one, that doesn't seem like the two are going to become one there, does it? And so if this is how our hearts are before God, this is how your hearts are going to be before anybody. So I've had people come in and say, well, I came to the church and they didn't help me. What they really meant at times was was I came to the church and they didn't tell my husband or my wife what I thought they needed to tell them. They didn't control my spouse. They didn't correct them in the way that I thought they should because they came already thinking this is what it's like. And that's, what, that, that's a hard place to be. I, I found myself in that instance many, many times. And so what I'm trying to do is help people actually. How many of you like Play-Doh? Come on now. Sometimes a person will come with a soft heart and the other person will have the hard heart. What's gonna happen? Somebody's gonna get smashed. Even if I were to cover, the soft heart covers the hard heart. At what point does it separate so much that like it's literally thin? The taker is going to take, and if the giver keeps giving at some point, the giver's gonna give out. There's only a few scenarios in marriage. There's a taker and a taker, that's two hard hearts, and they're just gonna take out, and they're gonna burn out. There's a taker and a giver, and the giver's gonna give out at some point. And then there's a giver and a giver, and this is where, come on, the two can become one. <laughs> Amen. I don't know why I don't know why the uh, Yeah, you're right. I don't know why the woman's heart is bigger. I don't know. That's prophetic. My goal as a pastor is not to tell people what to do, but it's to walk them through the reality of what they're facing. And it's to resource them. They might need a book, they might need a counselor, they might need a group. And if it's a violent abuse, they need a police officer. Amen. Amen. If you're suffering to a degree like that in any physical abuse, that is what you need. You need a police officer. If you come to me, we will call a police officer. Unfortunately, in the news, what we have is we have a number of denominations that have done nothing when women were suffering. And you'd think in the 21st century in 2022 that we wouldn't have to actually talk about this. But the fact is we do. Is that women were suffering then and they're still suffering now. And it isn't because they're not capable. It isn't because they're not educated, because they're not strong, because they're not smart. But just because it is the way that it is, We do have to understand that in our world, and if you were to ask me, where's the empirical evidence? I have walked with far more people through the pain of divorce than the beauty and blessing of marriage. And I can tell you, unequivocally, I can tell you that oftentimes there is this perspective toward the wife, not all the time, but often, that it has convinced me that we in the church have perpetuated often abuse and guilt and shame toward her in a way that she is scarred for far too long. And I'm just saying for us, one of the things we're doing as a staff is I gave all of our pastors a book that I'm gonna share with you um, that changed my perspective. It's a, it's a real deep biblical dive. And I don't ever want us to do that. We've gotta look at things biblically. We've gotta help people restore marriage whenever possible because we believe in marriage. We wanna make sure that we spend more time on the development Of marriage, so that we don't have to spend as much time in the reconciliation of what's been damaged. But the reality is, we've got to look at these types of things. And the fourth part is this: if you if you divorce your spouse for the wrong reason or without biblical grounds, and let let me let me um, say this, please hear me. Then your repentance is still necessary. It may be that you divorced your spouse and you moved on. Time does not heal all wounds. If your spouse died and you remarried, you're free. If you had biblical grounds later on and you remarried, I believe biblically you're free. I don't have time to go through that. It deserves a whole message in and of itself. I'm not trying to shame or guilt anybody, but I am saying if you, when Jesus said, if someone divorces their wife or someone divorces their husband and remarries, they're committing adultery. What that technically meant was that if they divorce their spouse so that they can remarry, which is what, maybe 70% of why people divorce? I mean, it's, it's a massive amount of people get divorced because they've already found someone else. That's not everybody. That's not all of us that have been divorced, right? But that's a lot more people than we think. Some people do that. That's what they do. And I've seen it again and, and again. I've, I've, I've walked people through this. And then what they do is because they're so in love and they found this person that doesn't know them very well and they feel a certain way about it, and their ears start to close, their hearts get hard, and they don't realize what they're doing is not something that's right and righteous. They're committing an egregious sin and it's gonna affect their family, it's gonna affect them, it's gonna bring scars to their, their, sp- their previous spouse. It's painful, it's difficult. I've led people to go and apologize and repent to their previous spouse if they've never done that before. Not to bring up old wounds, but to heal those wounds. I've called people who divorced without biblical grounds to go and apologize to their children and say, I should have never did what I've I've done, to break off that generational iniquity so that it doesn't persist in the future generations. Friends, these are the kinds of things that God wants us to do. And as we do them, what we find is a healing river comes in and just explodes into our family. We don't find healing by avoiding. We don't find healing healing by getting someone to tell us what we want to hear. We find healing by humbling ourselves and taking up what scripture teaches and asking God to bless the obedience of his word. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's difficult, but we already know that pain, don't we? What we're looking for is God's healing. In Malachi 2.16, the Bible says clearly that God hates divorce, but can I look you in the face today and tell you God does not hate divorced people that is not what that means. Some of us are carrying a shame. Why does God hate divorce? Because it robs us of our time, our memories, our affection, our legacy, our family. God hates divorce and so do we. And there's a reason why he hates it because of what it does to his kids. He doesn't want that for us. God's not just mad at us. He wants what's best for us. He designed life this way. We walked away in sin. Jesus wants to restore us back to what he originally created and we continue to struggle with that. That's our reality. But we have to keep coming to Christ even if we've blown it or somebody has sinned against us. That's where healing comes from. We bring it to Christ. You may not get all the questions that you have answered, but you can be satisfied by God. You can be healed by God. So if you're married, listen to this in the check light, is on, the check engine light, like in your car, I want to encourage you to pull over and take a look at the manual and see what's wrong. And if you can't understand the manual, I want you to take it to the dealership. (laughs) And they'll read the code on your car. Amen. And they'll tell you what's going on and give you a prognosis. But you need help. You need help. If you're divorced I want you to know you can receive healing and freedom in him. If you've already done that, keep walking in it. I'm not trying to bring it up. I'm not trying to trigger you today. We just happen to be in Mark chapter 10. Isn't that right? Can I also tell you, divorced people, share this with others. I've got friends that I think are they don't want to share it with people because they feel too much shame. It's so powerful when we share what we've been through even if it's painful, and the more that we share it, I mean, with trusted people, and then eventually it becomes a testimony, we show that the healing power of God is still available today. Friends, I want you to know you gotta talk about it. You gotta talk about it. And if you have children, you need to talk with them about it. They need to talk about it. And that's what we're gonna commit to doing. If you're single, please know this, we don't believe marriage is your goal. As far as I can tell, the Apostle Paul was single, and we all know Jesus was single. So you can be single the rest of your life and fulfill God's purpose. And we're not a church that believes that's the, that's the place we're trying to get to. Friend, if you're single, just worship, serve, and love God. We're a family of all kinds of people and all kinds of walks of life from every different place, young and old, men and women, married and divorced, single, widowed, widowers, all kinds of backgrounds, different stages, different ethnicities. That's the beautiful thing called the family of God. And we all belong, we all have a fit, we all have a place here. We're not here to judge each other. We're here to walk with one another and find the redemption and the healing of Jesus Christ. And I believe that that's what this book brings as we follow it and we obey it. I wanna uh, share something with you as I close. I wanna give you some resources. If you're struggling with the issue of divorce and remarriage, I believe this is the best book that you can read. It is as thick as the Bible And the first day that I came to Northwest Church almost three years ago, I went into our bookstore and on the shelf for sale, I saw this book. Ten years ago, I read this book and it changed my life. I was officiating remarriages and I needed to come under biblical conviction. I felt as a pastor, I need to understand this better than I do. I'm just being honest with you. I felt like I only understood it like inch deep and it made me feel vulnerable. And so I went and read tons of books, all the passages in the Bible. I needed more help. And then I read this book. And then when I came here three years ago and I saw it on the shelf, I went to pastor Steve Shell and I said, Steve, that book, I've, i nobody I know has ever even read it. Did you read that book? He goes, he said, oh, yeah, I read the book. It was awesome. It's one of the best books I ever read. That's why we sell in the bookstore. I said, I knew I was supposed to be here. <laughs> Man, best book I ever read. This guy is an incredible scholar. Um, Next book. Uh, This is called Sacred Marriage. Uh, Marriage is about making you holy, not happy. I don't care who you are. You need to read this book. Uh, Next one. Timothy Keller. Uh, I love him. I'm not as reformed, but I still appreciate what he has to say. I just want to put that in there, you know, just amen. Uh, The meaning of, great book. Great book. This is Sacred Marriage and the Meaning of Marriage is for all of us that are married. And if you're single, you can read it as well obviously, but it's to develop our marriage. It's to prepare for marriage. It's to continue to grow our marriage because our goal is not to survive. Our goal is to thrive. Amen? Would you stand? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you today in the name of Jesus. And we, um, we're talking about something that can be very difficult uh, because a lot of us in the room, statistics say that 40% um, have gone through this, or, or even the marriages that are happening are second and third marriages. And so, God, I just pray for anybody that's feeling a certain way about this, Lord, that they wouldn't feel shame or condemnation, but they would have a biblical charge in them to just bring all things to you. You're, you're the one that heals us, Lord. You're the one that helps us. You're the one that walk us through pain and difficulty, whether it's divorce or anything else. So we just yield that to you. We submit that to you. I just pray over anybody that's feeling that way or working through that in their mind, in their heart. God, I pray in the name of Jesus for your healing power and your biblical wisdom to be true and available. Bring revelation to our hearts about the things that I didn't discuss today, but are found in your word. And also, Lord, I pray for those that are married. And if you're next to your spouse, hold her or his hand. Come on, just do it. Father, I pray, if you can, if they're next to you. Father, I pray over the marriages. Father, we ask that we would not survive, but we would thrive. I pray that you would inspire a greater vision, perhaps, than we have ever had before. And if somebody's here that's married and their spouse is not here, Father, I just pray over them as well. Father, give us a vision for marriage that would show the world that there is a faithful and a loving God and he has seen in what you do in us because it is a miracle for us to have a loving and a profound marriage that reveals a loving and gracious God. I pray that you would make us examples and witnesses. Help us, Lord, to be people out of love that are sacrificial, that are giving and not just thinking about self, but thinking about the other. Lord, we just upgrade our perspective of marriage. And God, I also pray for our singles today, those that will be married someday. I just ask you, Father, to help them to prepare to be the person and not just see the person that they're looking for. I pray, Father, that you would raise that standard in their own heart um, to cultivate the kind of life that would bring a contribution to the marriage that they will have in the future and for those that are widowed or widow, widowers or are remaining single i just pray for you to bless them thank you lord that we're in covenant with you and you are enough provide father we thank you for that we receive it today in jesus name and everyone said amen, amen. thanks for listening